Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center. Our goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Brenda Stevenson, distinguished scholar of race, slavery, and gender, the Nichols Family Endowed Chair in History, and Professor of African-American Studies at UCLA. Brenda Stevenson is an internationally acclaimed historian, a legendary teacher, and a sought-after public voice locally and nationally. Welcome to you, Brenda. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, David. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, So we are now two and a half weeks after the tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis by police officer Derek Chauvin on May 25th protests calling for justice for Mr. Floyd, and more broadly, for a serious sustained challenge to structural racism in this country, continue apace. For some, this current moment of civil uprising and calls for change summon up up the memory of 1992 and the aftermath of the Rodney King beating. Brenda, you're a scholar renowned for your work on slavery, but in 2013, you wrote an important book, The Contested Memory of Latasha Harlan's about another racially informed murder of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins in 1991 that served as a precipitant for the events a year later that have come to be known as the LA Uprising. I'm wondering if you can take us back to that time, Brenda, if you could remind us about the case of Latasha Harlins and why it was so important for you to write a big book about the case. Well, um, Latasha Hollins actually died about eight days after the Rodney King beating. Um, It was on March 16th that she walked into a a local store, which was owned by uh, Mr. and Mrs. Du, um, a Korean, nationalized Korean couple who owned several, or a couple actually, I should say, convenience stores in the L.A. area. Um, there was a fight between Latasha and Mrs. Du over a bottle of orange juice. Mrs. Du thought Latasha was trying to steal it. Latasha was trying to pay for it. There were language differences. They got into a, a verbal and then a physical altercation. Latasha decided to just void the store, walk away. But when she turned around to walk out of the store, having placed the orange juice on the counter, to leave, Mrs. Du um, had picked up a gun from under the counter and shot her in the back of the head. Um, this was considered a very outrageous, um, very uh, violent response by Mrs. Du. The community was very upset. And this took place within the context of other incidents just like this um, that have been happening. Lots of hostility between the Korean American or Korean um, shopkeeper community and those persons who were their customers who lived in South Los Angeles. So Mrs. Du is found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. There's a recommendation before the court 
of the maximum sentence of 16 years because she did not show remorse for her actions. But the judge in the case um, decided that Mrs. Dew really should not serve any jail time whatsoever. And so she was let go with a fine and also with um, community service. This was very upsetting, as you might imagine, to the African-American community and allied communities as well. In fact, many people in the city wrote about how they found this to be just an inappropriate sentence. It just was not the African-American community. It was shared across many communities, even Judge Collins' community, which was Jewish-American. Many people from that community also spoke out and said, what what happened here? This is not correct. Um, But it stood. And so at the time of the 1992 insurrection, Many people were still very angry and upset about what had happened, this injustice with regard to Latasha Harlins. And you see in the aftermath of this hostility, um, the burning of Koreatown, where two thirds of the shops owned by Korean Americans um, in that area um, were destroyed. And so that's the role that Latasha Harlins murder played in the insurrection of 1992. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, what drew your attention away from your uh, area of research for which you have gained much renown, the 19th century and slavery and the issues that you uh, dealt with over the course of your career prior to that point? What, what um, grew in you um, that said, I need to address this issue, this issue of contemporary history? Well, it's very interesting because I had just moved to Los Angeles and I'd grown up in the American South. Um, I had gone to school in the Northeast and then I had taken a job at in Texas before coming to UCLA. And so I knew um, Los Angeles was very new to me and I was just trying to understand this new space that I was occupying and my students at UCLA and all of that. And so I arrived in January of 1991 and you know, early on then there was what happened with Rodney King and seeing that videotape. I'm sitting in this faculty apartment, you know, in Westwood and watching this grainy videotape of this beating. And then a couple of weeks later, not even a couple of weeks later, I'm seeing the videotape of Latasha Harlins being shot in the back of the head. And I thought, oh my gosh, did I come from the frying pan, which was Texas, to the fire? Uh, because if you grow up on the East Coast, Los Angeles is always thought of as this place where everyone's relaxed and there's a lot of harmony and peace. I mean, you know, it has that kind or had that kind of stereotype. And even after Watts in 1965, it was just thought of as this place of beautiful beaches and palm trees and, you know, et cetera. It wasn't this kind of angst that you had either, you know, racial um, conflict that I grew up with in the South or this kind of large European, Eastern European um, immigration, uh, immigrant group that was in the Northeast in New Haven where I was, for example. So it was quite different. And I was trying to figure out really what it was. And when I saw this happen, I thought, oh, my gosh, you need to stop and wait. You know, you do. Race is part of what you do. You try to understand. And gender is as well. And so what's going on here? And the reason why I was really pulled into this case was because all the major players were female. 
you know, there was Latasha Holland. She was 15 years old. She was African-American from a poor family. There was Sunja Du, who was Korean, a Korean national um, who was 50 years old and was a shopkeeper. And then there was Judge Carlin, who was 40 years old and very wealthy from a, you know, a, a Hollywood family, really. And so this just seemed unique, you know, where else have I ever been where these three characters, these three people would come together under these circumstances and their lives and careers um, and families, all this would play out, you know, in a, in a Los Angeles courtroom. And so I was really drawn into it because I thought it was a unique opportunity to really look at women in late 20th century urban society and see really what was going on with us. You know, with, mm-hmm. you know, why we had this conflict and why it played out this way and what the results were. And also, I think it shook this narrative of this is a racial conflict being a male dominated terrain. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when we think about racial conflict, we usually think about as we are today, thinking about a black man being killed by in some, you know, by, killed by a white policeman. Mm-hmm. And so that has dominated really the narrative with regard to racial conflict and upset and insurrection and, and criminal justice system being unfair, etc. But here was something totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's such a fascinating prism. And the book is really a, a brilliant unpacking of the entwined lines of the lives of these three women. And I'm wondering what it led you to conclude about Los Angeles. You newly arrived, having grown up in Virginia, gone to graduate school in New Haven, um, been at Texas and now coming to Los Angeles. What did it, how did it alter your understanding of what LA was? Well, it didn't take me long to realize that LA was a city that was divided by race. Um, it was very clear even before this happened, you know, the kinds of um, incidences of uh, microaggressions within Westwood um, on the campus of UCLA, etc. So it was pretty clear early on that this notion of Los Angeles being the most diverse city in the nation and therefore having a kind of window of opportunity for racial um, harmony was a myth. Um, and it was a barely, you could barely scratch the surface before you could see that, um, it was an off-centered, very off-centered myth, not a reality whatsoever. And these cases, well, the case of Latasha Harlan's made it all also very clear that racial conflict was not it, it was not just the project of men, but that it also was the project of females and that females were in themselves a, a kind of um, the gender of racialized hierarchy um, was a part of that, of being female and that was playing out very clearly um, in this beautiful, wonderful city. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that point about um, the lack of um, gender exclusivity in perpetuating racism and racial stereotypes 
attest to the deep structure of racism in American society. Um, and I'm wondering, what was it about the early 1990s that uh, proved to be such an intense incubator for tension and violence and unrest and insurrection around that deep structural racism? Well, I think, you know, um, whenever there are difficulties within the economy, um, I think you're going to see in particular um, in stark relief what our ideals are with regard to equality and democracy and what the realities are. And so in Los Angeles at the time, you had... um, a city that in some ways was really booming economically, but not for people of, or African-Americans. You know, a lot of the jobs in terms of the, the industrial sector um, had been decentralized in Los Angeles. And so um, a lot of people were um, out of work. There was a high unemployment, particularly among um, Black youth and Black male youth in particular. If you recall, there also was a big problem with gangs. There was huge uh, amount of gang violence, uh, gang affiliation issues, etc. Crack cocaine um, was literally destroying much of the Black community in South Los Angeles. Um, it actually was one of the first sites of production, of mass production of crack cocaine was in South Los Angeles. And so there were lots of horrific things that were going on for the Black community. In Los Angeles in particular, there were, you know, um, two serial murders. Murderers, uh, murderers that were um, at work in the black community, this Lonnie, the sleeper, you know, and another person as well. So there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of angst. There was a, really a sense that while Los Angeles had moved on um, to become this international um, city, this city, this global city with enormous resources and potential um, for wealth, um, and for progress that the African-American working community in particular had been left behind. And that, that you know, and was it was getting worse because of crack um, too, so, and, and gang violence. So there was a lot of angst. On top of it, Los Angeles, of course, was at that moment a site of enormous uh, or very large migration from the Pacific Rim. And so, you know, you having, and from Central America, of course, so you having large numbers of immigrants coming to the city, coming to the county, um, looking for the American dream, and rightfully so, and but African-Americans feeling displaced in the economy um, and in residential spaces um, as a result of it. And so there was a lot of anxiety that was just going on and um, between Afri- the African-American community and other communities of color um, and a kind of, you know, a sense that a frustration with Mayor Bradley um, and all the progress that he had made, but that it was not having such a positive impact on the Black community. Mm -hmm. So you have the convergence of those vectors that you've just enumerated, um, and it leads to a kind of uh, explosion of pent-up energy and frustration um, uh, and um, takes the form of um, one can choose one's nomenclature uh, uprising, insurrection, riots. Um, first of all, what what do you think is the appropriate term, and how do you assess uh, the uprising 
Um, how did you understand it then and how do you see it now? Well, one of the things I also wanted to say, though, was um, in terms of the vectors that that we talked about earlier, was one thing also that made it very, very difficult for African-Americans in Los Angeles, and that was the police department. Um, whether we're talking about the LAPD or we're talking about um, the, the, the sheriff's department, there was a, a sense during the time that, you know, there was just a lot of pressure or over surveillance um, and uh, um, of the African-American community by the police department, rough treatment by the police department, easily um, arrested, uh, disproportionately arrested, disproportionately um, with long prison um, sentences. This was the era of the street three strikes um, and African-Americans felt um, rightfully so, that we were being targeted, particularly with, you know, drug um, offenses and that, um, and being placed for in life or long, long sentences for very, um, for what we now call misdemeanors or wouldn't even call a crime at all. Um, so this, this also was something that really graded on the African-American um, community. I mean, people just didn't know where to turn. There were, you know, gangs in the streets. There were drugs in the streets. The mm -hmm. police were not helping. As one woman said, the LAPD would ride down the sidewalk, you know, in this threatening manner. They wouldn't even take the streets. They would, you know, is this, it's, in other words, they had a kind of ownership of the Black community and, and, and policing the you know, black bodies that were there. How do you keep, on the one hand, LA's booming on the West side and on in South Central, um, the police see it as their business to control whatever might interfere with this booming of Los Angeles. Um, and, and people feel that they felt it quite um, severely. So, you know, so that's one thing uh, that I wanted to just add in. But secondarily, to get to your question with regard to how I name it, I really name it as a kind of um, insurrection. I think people really felt that this was a chance to break the bonds of, uh, of, of their um, second class citizenship, you know, that they, they really wanted to in some ways fundamentally impact the society um, that they were that they were a part of. They wanted to reach deeply into the foundations of inequality and and um, ill treatment and rupture that, change that um, in some ways that would really they could see the results of it. And do you think that a moment um, of possibility for real change was not realized then, was somehow lost, um, that it was an opportunity that was not realized. Now with the retrospective, uh, what is it, 28 years? Well, I do think that um, there certainly was an opportunity with regard to the criminal justice system that was not completely realized. I mean, you know, um, there were some shakeup, you know, and there, uh, Daryl Gates, um, went out and, you know, they got a new police chief. Uh, there were lots of investigations with regard to police who were doing illegal, um, involved in illegal activities. Those kinds of things happened. But um, 
there was a culture, there's a culture in organizations that's very hard to disrupt. And it certainly is very hard to dismantle, to use the word of the day. Um, when we look at Minneapolis, it's, it's very hard to change that. So, you know, um, we, you know, you get rid of a police chief and you get rid of some of the people associated with the you know, policing. But, you know, very early on, people saw that this was not going to have a substantial impact. We saw the sentences that came down, even when it went as a civil rights case, uh, the four uh, men who were policemen who had beaten Rodney King, for example, got very light sentences. We saw that, you know, Judge Carlin um, was, had been right before the riots reelected um, as a judge. And so the system was not changed very much. And yes, there was an opportunity to really investigate not just policing, but our entire criminal justice system, how, um, you know, the, the biases that are a part of it, the structural biases that have been in place really since the 17th century. And, uh, um, and that was not done. And there was money thrown at the black community. You know, people were able to rebuild in Koreatown. Very difficult for them to do so, but many people were able to do so. Um, there were some attempts to rebuild South Los Angeles as well. The name changed from South Central to South Los Angeles. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, to, but, you know, the kinds of real differences that needed to take place with regard to creation of uh, loss of jobs um, in, in improve the school system in South Los Angeles um, to to culturally affirm the importance of the black community and the contributions of the black community, these kinds of things did not happen. And even if they happened in the first year or so, they were not continued. I I mean, I wonder with the passage of time, the last 28 years from 1992, which offered up that prospect of change, um, uh, reforms to the police department, an African-American police chief. And yet now here we are uh, almost three decades later, um, and we seem to be encountering in this country um, uh, a video or a movie that just keeps repeating itself um, in terms of the murder of innocent African-Americans, uh, often at the hands of, of, of police officers. And I'm wondering what effect that has had on your historical vision, your sense of the trajectory of the struggle for justice in this country. Um, For example, has it caused you to revise your understanding of the civil rights movement and its efficacy in affecting change? Well, I don't think, it has not caused me to revise my um, notion of what was achieved through the civil rights movement. A lot was achieved in the civil rights movement. Um, What I think is that the movement, of course, was eclipsed by a number of things, the loss of Dr. King, the loss of Malcolm X, uh, the criminalization of people who were in the movement, um, the, the Vietnam War, of course, took priority over that after a while. Um, the um, the the program that was going to be put in place to to fight poverty, um, all of those kinds of things were not f- completely fulfilled, and so yes, um, there were there were limited gains in 
with regard to the civil rights movement, but there were some gains still. Education became more available to upper, you know, um, post high school education, secondary education became available to many more African-Americans. Um, certainly in my cohort, almost everyone I knew went to college, which was very different from my parents' cohort, for example. Um, almost everybody went into professional jobs. Uh, or jobs that were well-paying. There was a definite construction of a middle class, of a Black middle class. And um, African-Americans benefited from the Voting Rights Act. Of course, now we have had some return to issues associated with that. But for many decades, African-Americans very much benefited. We very much benefited from the Voting Rights Act. And... um, also looking at the Title IX that was uh, associated with the civil rights, um, affirmative action, which has virtually disappeared in most places now, but it was very important in terms of helping to build the black middle class, helping to get black people educated, um, et cetera. So there were some real wins. And also it raised a consciousness of, with regard to racial difference and racial inequality in our country. And that was really, really important. And what we have not had uh, really since that time period is a movement that raised consciousness about the African-American um, condition or the condition of indigenous people or the condition of Latinx peoples or other or poor people or immigrants and, you know, et cetera. So um, many people have patted themselves on the back and said, well, we had the civil rights movement and we had the Voting Rights Act and we have Title IX and we had a black president. So, you know, we're doing a good job of moving towards racial equality and including every everyone at the table. But um, that is in some way, I don't want to just say it's surface because it's not surface. It's meant a lot, you know, a m- much to my family, to other families that I know. But, you know, we have lost some of that consciousness of racial inequality. We have taken our eye off the prize of trying to make this a country that lives up to its ideals. Um, And those ideals, of course, have evolved over time. But the ideal of equality and the ideal of democracy and that the resources of the fantastic, marvelous resources of the nation are available to everyone under the same kinds of conditions. And and I think we've lost that. We've had a sense that we've done that. We've taken care of that work. Move, move on. You know, why are we still talking about that? Mm-hmm. And so, but the people who are negatively impacted by not having us realize this, these ideals continue to work for that, to, to continue to push forward for that. And so you will continue to see protests. You will continue to see organizations like Black Lives Matter, continue to push that point. I mean, I think when in the 1960s, during the civil rights era, Black lives did matter. People came to realize that. People came to realize that Black people um, were had been treated really badly and were not equal in our society and were subject to enormous amounts of oppression and violence, um, maintain that oppressive state. But we've lost... And our notions of that, we've decided that that's no longer the case. And why are we still talking about it? And but black people and other people, um, the disabled, the, you know, the, the poor, the very poor in our society, the homeless, etc. They 
still we still suffer and we still are acting to make sure that that's known and that's remedied right so there there are many bends in the road it's not it's not been a by any stretch of the imagination uh, a linear path in the quest for justice in this country and um, I'm wondering um, if you think the current moment is a moment of clarity a moment uh, of consciousness raising and a moment of return to awareness about uh, deep structural inequalities in American society. What do you make of the current moment? Well, I do think that it's a, it's, it's a game changer with regard to consciousness. I think that many, many, many people can really see when they look at that nine minute videotape um, of Mr. Floyd being killed, that that was an awful act. That was a violent act. That was an act in which the person, um, Mr. Uh, the policeman, really meant to kill the person under the authority of the law um, that he represented. And people could see that. I mean, and also, you know, before when they, we looked at, uh, you know, what happened to Michael Brown and what happened to Trayvon Martin and what happened to um, uh, so many other people, people would say, oh, you know, or even Rodney King, you know, they kept saying, oh, he was rolling around, he was moving, you know, da 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 da. There was nothing there. This was this was just an act of outright first degree murder. And so I think when people could see that and could see also how it was covered up, immediately covered up, and the person was not arrested, and the person, the people who allowed it to happen uh, were not uh, arrested either. I think that really raised the consciousness. And of course, it doesn't happen in isolation because you also have Mr. Aubrey who was killed in Georgia recently and, and Brianna Taylor who was killed in Louisville, Kentucky, and even the black Harvard alum, you know, um, in Central Park, all this is happening at the same time. It's also happening at the time of COVID when I think people feel really vulnerable to outside forces, feel the vulnerability of the globe, really, and feel frustrated by, you know, our leaders and the people who are supposed to protect us uh, not being able to protect us. And so I think it was, that was a kind of opening to, to see a global, you know, a, a vulnerability in other communities, not just in your own community, which is where we're mostly located. We're mostly located in what happened at my camp today. Right. Right. You know, right. um, I just say we'd like to welcome a very um, active and engaged uh, protester in uh, into the conversation. Your bird, um, whom we hear. I'm and, so uh, sorry. No. <laughs> yes, I'm very sorry about. No, my no, no. It, it's always good to hear multiple voices in this conversation. So I'm I'm curious, what what do you think has changed, Brenda? Um, you've you've identified that that people look differently upon. Um, episodes that have been occurring with great frequency over the course of uh, the recent past and the long history of the United States. What has changed? Well, I think one of the things that's changed is that this is a global movement. I think because COVID was in some ways, it's global. You know, people are, um, and people are very tense about what's going to happen in the November election. People not just in this country, but also globally. And so it was a moment when people, the, the world is feeling very vulnerable. Um, and the world is also looking at the United States, 
um, the great this great nation, what's going to happen in the United States. And so I think one of the positives about this moment is that people could see no matter where you were in the world, where you are in the world, they could see the vulnerable in themselves, in their society, in George Floyd. Okay. They could understand their own sense of victimization or the victimization of people, certain peoples in their society through his victimization. And I think that that is unique and important. And I think that's why you see the protests around um, the world. That's why you see people trying to make some structural changes. I mean, I was amazed to see, to read in the BBC yesterday about, you know, the changes that are now going to be made to drama schools in England, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. so everyone, not everyone, but lots of people are taking this as a moment of reflection. Of course, most of us are still sheltered inside. And so we have a lot of time to think about a lot of things, you know, uh, and we're glued to our news apps and all these other kinds of things. But whatever the reason why, it's happening. And that's important. So that global reach is, in a certain sense, echoing back uh, to the United States and holding up a mirror uh, of American society um, in ways that seem to be having effect um, on larger and larger numbers of white people in this country. Yes, it's, it's, I think a lot of people um, have been um, impacted and thought of and are thinking about it. And we say white people in general, um, and I think a lot of white people are, are very invested in this moment and, and um, changing their consciousness or their consciousness being changed or evolving. But I also think that um, there are lots of other people too. We see Latinx people, we see Asian Americans, which is somewhat unusual um, to a certain extent. And we also see um, indigenous people who are involved and we see the global community that's involved. Mm-hmm. So people of all different ethnicities and races around the globe. And so I think this is, this is all very important. And one of the characteristic features of this moment is that we're hearing concerted calls for very significant, even dramatic structural change, um, abolish the police, defund the police, uh, uh, dissolve, um, uh, as well as overhaul the, uh, the law enforcement system and the incarceral system of this country. Um, and I'm just wondering from your perspective as an historian, is change of that scale possible in this country? Does, does the United States work that way? Has there ever been change of that uh, scale in response to uh, a series of uh, particular events? There have been. I mean, we have the American Revolution and we have the Civil War. <laughs> so, um, and we have the Civil Rights Movement as well. So there, and we have the Women's Rights Movement. So there've been, there've been significant changes that, are, that have come uh, on this scale to the United States. I mean, um, that's how we became a nation. That's how we remained a nation during the Civil War and ended slavery. Uh, other forms of oppression were put in place, but it was not slavery. And so, you know, women were able to move to be to a state of almost equality with men within our society. And that meant a lot of structural change. So, you know, forming a nation, fighting a war to keep the nation, to end slavery, um, fighting a, a, a public war and a political war for women to get the federal vote and to gain equality, um, you know, changing our immigration systems it's changed back and forth but it's opened up and then closed back again and you know etc so we have had periods of fundamental um 
you know, institutional change, uh, systemic change in our society. So it certainly is possible to happen. And the civil rights movement was, of course, if we're going to look specifically at race and want, don't want to go back to the 19th century, we can look at the civil rights movement in the 20th century. And there was great, great change, not just legally, but as a result of uh, you know, um, so we had local laws that were changed, state laws, federal laws that were changed, etc. The public school systems uh, changed. Uh, every, the way in which we did life changed in the United States as a result. Too. I think people, you know, people forget how different our nation was before integration. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. We still have some segregated spaces, but everything was segregated during that time period. And um, and so just the that you'll see Black people places, um, you know, at the malls, in restaurants, in movies. It sounds crazy because it was a long time ago and, you know, it's nothing like that anymore. But this was tremendous change and not just legal change, but also cultural change, uh, too, that took place. So it certainly can happen. So in, in light of that um, uh, trail of progress that you've just uh, spoken of, um, I wonder if you think uh, the United States can ever fully and finally overcome its legacy of slavery, and what would that look like? What would that require? Well, I'm not certain that we can overcome the legacy of slavery. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm certain perhaps sometime in the in the far future, but I think that and it's not a, a straight line of progress, of course, because if it if so, by the you know, after the American Revolution, we all would have been equal. And after the Civil War and what happened in Reconstruction, those um movements towards equality would have stayed in place and we wouldn't have needed, you know, uh, the women's movement and we would not have needed the civil rights movement. So we've had some progress, but of course we've had retrenchment, we've had return, you know, too. And so we've taken steps forward and then we folded back again. And, you know, so it's been back and forth and back and forth. Um, I think that we have a long way to go because in every generation, there seems to be people who are socialized to believe that all people are not equal and that all people don't deserve to have equal access to the resources of our nation. And as long as we have young children and adolescents and you know, socialized to believe that, then that is going to be a problem within our society. So if you're born in a generation in which there is a social revolution, as it was during the 1960s, then you're raised with a kind of consciousness about equality and about progress that's been made with throughout race relations. But if you're born in a time period in which there is a retrenchment, when, when there's a return to this notion of inequality being okay, and inequality being natural. Um, and, it, and inequality means that you do well. I'm not thinking about other people. Focus on yourself. You do well. Then that's 
then it's difficult, I think, for those people raised under those circumstances to feel that um, equality is something that we want to strive for and that we have to go through um, pains to get to. Mm-hmm. How important do you think the Obama presidency was along that path? Well, I think for African-Americans and people of color and people who believe in equality, who really want to see equality, it was very important because regardless of how he was treated, how he and his family were disrespected, um, and how his attempts to make the country more progressive were turned around or vacated in the new administration, um, et cetera, it did, he did and his administration present to the world what could be um, something that worked, that was not a failure. So this notion that Black people are not good citizens and Black people are not intelligent and Black people cannot lead um, and Black people are not courageous or well-educated, etc., could not remain um, or stay as a staple um, in our culture, in global culture, with Obama as president of the United States, with President Obama as president of the United States. And even though people have resented it and denigrated it, Etc. It still remains a legacy that many people are proud of globally, not just in the United States and not just Black people. And how do you assess the Trump era? There are some who say Trump is just the latest in a line of perpetuators of the system. And others say Trump has uh, exacerbated by uh, many orders of magnitude um, race relations in this country. How do you see it? Well, I think we we have in our society a conservative strand um, or strain of uh, political strain. I think it operates in many, many ways. And I think that his administration is a part of that. And his administration was born out of that and um, has embraced that conservative um, attitude. And the people who support him, um, I think, no matter what he does, they are conservatives and they're part of the, they see him as part of their conservative agenda. And certainly when you look at, you know, the way that the federal bench has been changed, since he became president, the way that um, rules or laws with regard to our environment have changed, the way that we look at Title IX um, has changed, the way that um, the implementation of um, the way in which the Voting Rights Act, I know it was done before he became president, but nonetheless, uh, it's been much more effective since um, the changes in the voting rights laws uh, in terms of um, um, excluding people. So his, his administration, I think, has had a, a great and lasting um, long-term impact on our society. And even if he 
does not remain as president, the federal bench will remain very conservative. You know, the kinds of global relations that we had coming into this administration have changed dramatically, and that will take time to figure out and to hopefully change for the better. Um, and so, but I think one of the good things, if I can, I don't even know if I can say anything's good, but one of the things that <laughs> I can appreciate is that the curtain has been pulled back on racism in the United States. Um, and there's nowhere for our nation to hide from this legacy in the world now. Do you see part of your mission as an historian to pull back that curtain? I do. Um, I do see part of it because until we recognize it and we recognize all shapes and forms of it, it cannot be rooted out. And um, me as a black person cannot live easily um, in a country that I built my family over the generations has contributed greatly to, and I raised my daughter to contribute to. Mm-hmm. Is this why you became an historian, in order to use history to advance justice? I have to say that I became a historian because I loved history. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very passionate about finding out more and more and more and more. And that's how I became a historian. So I have evolved. <laughs> when did that consciousness take shape that you said part of my mission, an important part of my mission as an historian, is to uh, seek out and promote justice? I think um, when I started teaching, I realized that there were such deep seated misconceptions about history in the United States that when I, my first teaching job in Texas, I remember someone saying to me, when are we, and we're like in week three and of teaching U.S. history. Um, and someone said to me, why are we learning about women and black people and Native Americans and immigrants? Why aren't we learning about our presidents and our glorious wars? And I realized there's a lot of work to be done out there. Okay. And, um, and so I, you know, I just wanted to try to repair some of the damage that had been done with the mythology of the United States, because we cannot be the nation that we want to be as long as we wrap ourselves in a flag of mythology and refuse to see what we are underneath that flag. And maybe by way of conclusion, it perhaps can be a reaffirmation of what you just said, but what lessons do you take from the past and do they lend you any sense of optimism in the future? The lesson I take from the past is resist, 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 okay? Resist being comfortable where you are. Resist accepting the status quo. Resist falling into the comfort of the mythologies. Um, And resist people writing your story. Write your own. Well, on that note, I would like to thank my friend and colleague, Brenda Stevenson, distinguished historian and the Nichols Family Chair in History at UCLA. It's been a great pleasure to have you on Then and Now. 
It's always a great pleasure to speak with you, David. You ask the most interesting questions and I end up saying a lot more than I thought I should. <laughs> well, no, thank you. So delighted to have you and, of course, your bird in, in the background. Yes. <laughs> then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Our podcast can be found wherever podcasts can be found. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, this is David Myers wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>